Around the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. Wolfon, the all-star rosters are complete until injury replacements have been named. There's a bunch of other stuff we're going to talk about today, too. Talk to me. What's going on? What's going through that sharp basketball mind of yours? Oh, man. So many thoughts. And honestly, very few of them are actually related to all-star selections, which I think we're mostly fine. Like I don't have yeah. actually too many quibbles about it, mainly because I knew that a bunch of very deserving players were going to get squeezed in the West. And I knew that I wasn't going to feel too aggrieved one way or another in the East, where I don't think there were that many surefire candidates outside of the ones that were obvious locks that did make the team. So yeah. apart from that, it's like, I'm not, I don't think I ever really get too up in arms about all-star selections, but especially this year, it just felt like that was going to be the situation. Like it was just a bloodbath in the West. So many guys that probably would have made it in the East were going to get left off. And then in the East, you were going to have some fringier candidates who made it and probably some fringier candidates that were in the same tier that missed out because of some hair splitting. And I think that's mostly what ended up happening. Yeah. I'm with you, but we, we will get to our, I guess, all-star snubs. And if there is anything we can pretend to be up in arms about when it comes to those all-star rosters, we'll get to them later in the show. We are also going to, barring us taking way too long to talk about everything else, finally get to talking about the surging Cleveland Cavaliers later in this show. Don't think we're going to get to those the Utah Jazz that we ignored uh, for a while because that Cinderella story seems to have come to an end. But yeah. We're going to get to the All-Star Stomps. Their Finn Sanity run is over, Cash. Nice. Um, but there are a few things that we both wanted to kind of quickly fire through off the top. Um, Wolfon, I know you're going to at some point take the mic and talk a little bit about the Joel Embiid situation, uh, a little bit about perhaps your thoughts on the discourse when it comes to this scoring explosion in the NBA and whether it's good for the game or bad for the game or all that BS. There's actually something funny I want to touch on, too, off the top. Before we do any of that, I'll quickly ask you, do you have any thoughts at all on the Steven Adams trade that kind of flew under the radar this week that sees him end up in Houston, but obviously he's still out for the remainder of this season. So the Rockets are kind of making this deal, you know, obviously with the knowledge that he will, I guess, be their backup center starting next season behind Alperen Shingun. I mean, I think if he can be remotely healthy next year and get back to somewhere close to the level he was playing at before he got injured. That's a tidy little piece of business for Houston. And I, I really like it, especially given that there was that report came out uh, that came out. I think it was, was it Shams or Sam Amick who wrote essentially a story that like the Rockets were ready to hit the accelerator this season at the behest of Ime Udoka and I just felt like that would have been a mistake. Like, Udoka's been great, don't get me wrong, but I think kind of acquiescing to his demands to make the team better like at any cost right now, you know, including these reports that they were willing to put, I don't know how many draft picks on the table for Mikhail Bridges. I mean, I think Bridges would be a great fit there, but I just don't know that Houston is in a position where they should be trying to like hit the throttle right now. Agreed. And I'm not saying that they like this trade means that that option is completely off the table. I have no idea, but I 
like the idea more of making a smaller scale move like this geared toward next season and not necessarily thinking about, I mean, like, yeah, push for the playoffs, sure, but don't go to like absurd lengths to do so when clearly you should still be thinking big picture and thinking about the long term because there is actually a pretty promising young core in place there right now. Yeah. And while, yes, you know, Fred Van Vliet's been integral to their success and he's a vet who is only under a guaranteed contract for next season. Although I think, is it a team option on year three? So like they could have him for a couple more years, but like maybe you could say the window there with like Fred in his prime as a valuable contributor is smaller, but I I don't think they should be making any drastic moves to try and push for a playoff spot this year necessarily. But I like the possibility of having Adams bear as a backup center next year. Cause you know, it's, it fits perfectly with the type of vets that they've already added to just bring that toughness and physicality and veteran know-how and professionalism to a team that really needed it. And it sort of continues moving them in that direction. And I think it would be, you know, again, if he can get and stay healthy, uh, a really nice fit for them at, you know, the cost of what it wind up being three second round picks, I think, and Oladipo's dead money salary. I, I like it for them. Yeah, me too. I think uh, if Steven Adams is healthy, it should pay off. I think he'll fit in great as a backup big on that team. Like you said, bringing the professionalism that they've been craving over the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, definitely on board with this much more pragmatic transaction as compared to what Ime Udoka reportedly wanted them to do in terms of kind of yeah. maybe not going all in this year, but you know, putting a lot of their chips on the table to make what I would call kind of a half-hearted run this season. Yeah, I guess I just want, like, from the Memphis side of things, were you surprised that they did this, given how important Adams has been to their success the last two, three years? I mean, or the last two years before this one, I guess. Like, kind of giving up on having him be that same important piece that he was moving forward. Like, I, I that's a little curious to me, and I guess maybe they just felt like he wasn't going to be healthy enough or they couldn't rely on him being healthy enough and they preferred the financial flexibility. I think he's got like a $12.5 million guarantee for next year. So maybe that's more important for them. But I I don't know. I mean, like we saw what happened in the second half. There were a lot of other factors involved in them falling off the second half of last year, but his injury did have a lot to do with that. And then him not being healthy from the very start of this year, I think contributed to, again, with a lot of other factors at play, uh, stumbling out of the gate so just giving up on that is you know not something that they should have done lightly i'm not saying they did do it lightly but that's something to consider as well you know you asked if i was surprised but then you said it's a little curious i'd say it, it to me curious is the word for this deal from memphis's point of view as opposed to surprising because to me it does indicate some sort of lack of faith in stephen adams being able to get back to being the player that he was for Memphis and the player that understandably so was so valuable to that team's success on both ends of the court. Yeah. So, you know, smaller scale transaction that is not going to change anything for either team this year, but could be an interesting one to track next season. Um, Okay. So before I uh, cede the mic to you, so you can dive into that, uh, the Joel Embiid injury situation, games played situation, perhaps, and the, um, scoring explosion discourse i did i I just quickly wanted to follow up on one 
thing from last week uh because i just i have some like funny and i guess good stats to share to piggyback out off our doc conversation from last week obviously like we don't have to go through the whole thing again i encourage you to go listen to last week's episode for our thoughts on the doc river situation in milwaukee you can read wolfon's piece that he wrote last week about milwaukee's decision to fire adrian griffin and replace him with doc rivers but Again, even if you do recall that episode, we both basically said we think the pendulum swung so far the other way that Doc might be underrated at this point. But I also conceded that the optics of this whole thing are hilarious in that a team so all in on winning a championship and the process that a 57 win pace wasn't enough to save their coach's job replaced them with a coach whose reputation is now winning regular season games and then falling short in the playoffs. I didn't really have uh, like the, the stats on me or the info to kind of provide the context or evidence for that. So I just wanted to read off some numbers that I came to find uh, in putting together this week's episode of Unfiltered. Subscribe to the score on YouTube to confirm, I guess, that this like reputation that Doc now has of this kind of regular season winner who suddenly can't get over the hump in the playoffs is not just a product of our imagination. It's very real. So Doc's teams have actually hit the over on their preseason win total over unders the last three years and four of the last five. Only 10 of 23 in his career, though, but nevertheless. But then, as we mentioned last week, okay, zero conference finals in his last 11 seasons, despite all the all-star talent we mentioned. Uh, Only coach in history to blow three different 3-1 series leads. He's lost an NBA record five straight game sevens, which I didn't realize last week. Has lost 11 straight closeout games in the second round or later. And his overall record in closeout games in his career is abysmal. And this is the stat, Wolf, I think I had mentioned it to you. I actually dug deeper to come up with a more complete stat, but this is the one that I really kind of just wanted to share with our audience to underline what I was talking about last week. So if you take every active coach in the NBA who's coached even one closeout game in his career, and you also add Mike Budenholzer, I guess technically isn't active, but whatever, you end up with 19 coaches. Now, obviously these samples range from one coach who's only coached one of these games all the way to Doc, who's coached 49. So I understand the samples very much vary in size. But still, 16 of those 19 coaches have winning percentages in closeout games ranging from 500 to 1,000. Now, the 1,000 is Ty Lu, who's actually a perfect 9-0 in closeout games. You can go all the way down to Quinn Snyder. He's 17th at a 19 because he's only won 37.5% of potential closeout games. He's at 375. Billy Donovan in 18th at 333. Those top 18, though, they have a cumulative winning percentage of 651. Because you, know, co- you win most closeout games you're in. 65%, the average of the 18 coaches. Bringing up the rear, Doc Rivers at 327 when his teams have had a chance to close out a series, 16 and 33. Now, even if you take out the 11-game losing streak his teams are currently on when they have a chance to close out a series, his 421 winning percentage would still rank 17th out of those 19 coaches. So again, just wanted to quickly follow up with a stat after the discussion we had last week to kind of back up what we were talking about. And again, reinforce like this was not just a product of our imaginations or a product of even the average fan's imagination of like, oh, Doc become this like kind of playoff choker in a way or whatever you want to, however you want to term it. No, like the numbers very much back up that basically... I was going to say since he won that title, but even no, even before he won that title, like, look, all the credit to him. He's a champion, won in 2008, but the majority of his career, like 22 of the 23 years he's coached a full season, 
his reputation is very much regular season winner, postseason disappointment. So those are the stats. And then very last note before I cede the mic to you. Speaking of hilarious, two nights after Doc Rivers said the cat was out of the bag and that the Bucks had proven they can all defend after an inspiring effort in Denver, they gave up 119 points and a 121 offensive rating to the 29th ranked offense in Portland, in Dame's return to Portland. So anyway, that's all I've got to say about that. I don't know, Wolf, if you have anything at all to add to that or if you just want to get to the things that are on your mind this morning, but have at it, friend. No, I've said my piece on Doc. Uh, I don't have anything to add until we have a bigger sample of him in Milwaukee and can talk about some of the changes that he's installed. Already we've seen a couple of the smaller ones, like some defensive tweaks and also some rotational tweaks. Like his sub patterns are different already than Griffin's were, uh, which I think is interesting. But like, again, it's just too small a sample and the playoff stuff. I don't know. I mean, it just is what it is and it will be that way until we see him in the postseason again and he gets another opportunity, I guess. But also players play and when choking happens, it's players who choke. I'm not saying coaches can't, but I am on record of saying I think Doc gets a bit of an unfair rep and I guess he'll have an opportunity to change that. But also, he might not because I think this Bucks team might be fatally flawed. So, yeah. One last note, actually, quickly. Speaking of Doc getting an opportunity to change that, Doc will also get the opportunity to coach the Eastern Conference All-Star team if the standings remain the way they are through the end of this weekend. Because Joe Mazzulla and his Celtics staff coached last year. There's the rule that I think is kind of down where they yeah. coaches can't coach <laughs> oh, two in man. a row because, God forbid, you reward the coaches <laughs> with the best record two years in a row. But anyway... It would then go to the second place team in the East, which, you know, Adrian Griffin's not there to earn. That's amazing. To, so when's the cutoff for that? It's though? this Sunday. Like it's literally two days. It's the end of this weekend. But it is really interesting because the 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 Bucks, the Cavs, the Knicks, and the Sixers go into this weekend separated by one game. So it could be Doc Rivers, which obviously would be the most hilarious outcome. Doc yeah. Rivers was 0-2 so far in his Bucks tenure, getting the All-Star nod. It could be uh, J.B. Bickerstaff, which in and of itself would be a story, given the way the Cavs started the season and all the injuries, and we're going to talk about them later in the show. If he ends up being the All-Star coach, what a story and turnaround that would be. But Nick Nurse obviously still in the mix, and Tom Thibodeau in the mix. So get ready to play 40 minutes, Eastern Conference All-Star starters, if the Knicks find their way into that second seed by the end of the weekend. So is it? does it include Sunday's games? Yes, it includes Sunday's games. At okay. the end of Sunday's games, the coach of the second-place team in the East will be the Eastern Conference All-Star coach. And right now, that would be Doc Rivers. Yeah, I'm now like really invested in this and rooting for that outcome. I just think that'd be so funny. And their two games are against the Mavs and the Jazz on the road. So... Uh, both winnable games, especially if the Mavs continue to be as shorthanded as they have been with, I, I mean, at least their last game, I think both Luca and Kyrie were on the shelf. So uh, that could very well happen. But uh, as you said, the, the Knicks, Cavs and Sixers, Sixers are all yeah. still in that mix. So uh, that that's awesome. Uh, uh, they, man, honestly, they should send Adrian Griffin. So that's like, what uh, I was. It, I think Charles Barkley mentioned that on the show, or no, was it Kenny? Someone mentioned that on the on the TNT show last night. Like, well, like they should just send Adrian Griffin, and then kind of led to a discussion. But uh, yeah, that would be. Hilarious. Do you think he would go? Like, if he was invited, do you think he would go? I don't. I guess I'm torn because there's part of me that says no. I feel like almost out of like, uh, I don't know, like a sense of 
not professionalism. Dignity. Dignity. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what I was gonna say. Like, you know, not wanting to be shameless, maybe not going. But there's also a part of me that could see it as like, look, who cares? Yeah, I'm out of a job right now, and I got fired. Yeah. And you know, and I might never get this opportunity again. Exactly. Not to coach again, but like to coach an, an all star. So game. I would, although I do know that he would 100% get clowned for it. I'm all like, if he if he actually got invited and wanted to do it, like, whatever, do it, man. All the power to you. I don't think that's gonna happen. All right. So, Joel Embiid. What, did, did you have any thoughts on this whole saga before? I, before I, mean, I launch into, no, I want you to launch into it. I want I I hogged the mic talking about uh, Doc's postseason failures. Let's let's hear your thoughts here on the Joel Embiid situation. So first and foremost, I think this is mostly on the Sixers, maybe even entirely on the Sixers, because that it was clear very early on that he shouldn't have been playing in that game against the Warriors, right? So, and, and I mean, it's on them for not putting him on the injury report in that game in Denver as well. Okay, like that. I, I don't understand how that happened. That that game against the Pacers, he was clearly hobbled. He had banged yeah. knees. To not even have him as like a questionable on the injury report leading up to that is just baffling. And you know they got hit deservedly with a fine for that. But that creates this whole hullabaloo about you know Embiid ducking because of what happened last year. And we can get into talking about that as well. And my feelings about all that discourse. But like. It, he should have been on the injury report and he clearly should not have been playing against Golden State. And if he said before the game, like, I feel good, I'm ready to go. And if the training staff had been like, you know, this checks out, he looks fine to us. That's fine. But then I think they quickly should have realized that he wasn't right. He wasn't moving well. And they should have had him out of the game before it got to the point where Jonathan Kaminga falls on his knee and he suffers what is now just being described as a meniscus injury, not necessarily a tear. I think Shams announced it or reported it as a tear and then walked it back. Who knows? Nick Nurse came out after the game and said it was unrelated to the left knee injury that he was already dealing with, which, I mean, you saw the play. Like, you could say that's a freak injury that didn't have anything to do with whatever was going on with his knee beforehand. But even if an injury is not directly related to a previous injury. If the knee is, again, I'm like, you know, not a kinesiologist or whatever, but like if your knee is in a weakened state, you're more susceptible to re-injuring it, right? I think that's just a fact. Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I just, I think he shouldn't have been playing in that game at all. And that is 100% on the Sixers. So we'll start with that. I don't know why Embiid felt so compelled to play in that game. And I don't want to make any assumptions about that. Maybe it was just like he, he truly felt well enough to play and thought he could tough it out. Maybe it was he looked at the standings, saw the Sixers losing ground and the Knicks and Cavs surging behind them. They'd lost three games in a row. He thought he could help them end that skid and thought it was important to do so. Maybe that's all it was. I don't know why he deemed it essential to play when he shouldn't have been. And I don't know why the Sixers decided to allow him to do so. <clears throat> but I think we have to consider the possibility that there were certain factors at play. One of which is this 65 game awards threshold that we've kind of railed against in the past that I continue to think for a couple of reasons doesn't make sense. And I know people are like, 
hey, it's not that crazy to say that players should play in like a certain number of games in order to be to be winning these awards. But A, I think, you know, as we've pointed out, voters are generally pretty good at taking that stuff into account. And I think as you have pointed out, that's why Bill Walton is the only player to have ever won an MVP while playing less than 65 games or the, you know, a comparable share of games in like shortened seasons that we've had. So that's like th- that standard is already there implicitly, but a not all seasons are the same and you could wind up in a situation like in 78 where a player who plays less than that number of games still deserves to win. But regardless, because the voters have been applying that standard for the most part anyway, all you're doing in creating this arbitrary cutoff is creating an incentive for players to play hurt in order to meet that threshold and just at least have eligibility, not only for awards, but for all NBA, which has you know major financial incentives tied to it for a lot of these players. So I don't know if that factored in, if Embiid saw his chance at MVP slipping away and wanted to preserve the possibility of, of remaining eligible for it. I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but I think that has to be considered. And I think that is a, you know, I think Joe Dumar has called it an unintended consequence, but it should have been a foreseeable consequence of instituting this rule in the first place. So there's that. Then there's this whole ducking narrative that has really rubbed me the wrong way. And again, I don't know. I think we, we know that Embiid is like pretty online. Yeah. And he's probably aware of what is being said about him. So did that play a part in his decision? Like he had to get out there and prove that either prove that he could tough it out or prove that, Hey guys, I'm actually really hurt here. (laughs) Like maybe, maybe you'll acknowledge that now, but I, I just, look, the thing with him not playing games in Denver. Yes. He hasn't played in Denver since 2019. He actually did play the game. So they, they play there once a season. He played the game there in the 2019-20 season. It just happened to occur on the 2019 side of that season. So we're talking about four games that he's missed, okay? In 2020-21, the game that he missed was the ninth straight game that he had sat out, out of uh, an eventual 10-game absence. Season after that, in 2021-22, it was the sixth straight game that he missed out of an eventual nine-game absence. And this time, it's clear he was hurt and shouldn't have been playing in that game. So that's three out of the four times where he was dealing with like extended injury absences. And unless you want to say that he like planned all of this out in advance, like weeks in advance, decided to shut it down and fake an injury for multiple weeks just so he didn't have to play in Denver, then yeah, largely we're just saying this is like bad luck. Apart from last year, when he played 13 straight games before that Denver game, skipped it, and then played, I think, nine straight games afterwards. That's the one you could point to and be like, you know, maybe had that great showcase against Jokic in Philly. Sixers won that game. Embiid had, I think, 47 and 18. He's, like, got a great chance to win MVP. Maybe he's like, you know what? 
I'm not feeling 100%. I don't like playing in the altitude. I don't want to risk getting embarrassed in this game and and then people remember that and I lose my MVP because of it. Maybe maybe that's what happened. I don't you know, I I don't think that that fits what I believe about Joel Embiid as a competitor, but I know a lot of people feel differently about Embiid than I do. So that's the one that you could point to and say, yeah, he was ducking. The rest of it is just complete manufactured nonsense. And I I don't begrudge fans for like running with that and getting their jokes off. Like fans are going to be fans. Like that is totally within the bounds of what what is like I deem acceptable for, you know, if you're a fan of the Denver Nuggets or if you're just a fan who doesn't like Joel Embiid for whatever reason. And there seem to be a lot of those people. But I'm talking about like purportedly credible national NBA writers writing stories about Embiid ducking tough matchups and reporters in press asking Nurse about like whether Embiid not playing in Denver says something about his character. Like it it was just totally embarrassing to me from people who have no idea. They, they haven't seen his medicals. They don't know whether he's healthy or not. Just speculating about this shit, it really rubbed me the wrong way. So that that's where I came down on that. And again, I don't know if that played any part in him playing through the knee injury when he shouldn't have. And again, ultimately, it's up to the Sixers to say, you're not ready to go or you don't look right. We're shutting you down. That's on them. But all this other stuff, the 65-game threshold, the like questioning his character for games missed, which is just like a, a generally an epidemic in the league right now, I feel like, where players who sit out in the interest of their long-term health are deemed to be like somehow morally or like uh, psychologically weak or something like that. I, the whole thing just gives me a bad feeling and it just feels that much worse now that Embiid is on the shelf with a meniscus injury that is going to cost him a chance at MVP that is going to potentially derail the 76ers season. Try as newly minted all-star Tyrese Maxey might to salvage it. You know, I don't think he can go for 50 plus every night and that's what it took for them to squeak past the jazz. So I, I just wind up feeling uh, pretty bitter about all this. I say it all the time. You know, I've, I've gladly gotten my jokes off when it comes to Joel Embiid in the playoffs and like certain things that have happened in the playoffs. Not injury related, but just performance related and stuff like that. And as I've said before, if it happens again in the playoffs, I'll get those jokes off. And I've called into question before some of like, the body language stuff and things like that when when things start spiraling out of control for the Sixers. But one thing I have never questioned and pretty much will never question is Joel Embiid's overall care level and compete level. Like if you've watched this guy since the day he stepped foot in the NBA after overcoming a litany of injuries as a youngster that would derail and potentially prematurely end most other careers what that guy went through to get to the NBA, like to actually play consistently in the NBA, let alone what he's gone through to become the player that he has become. The player that, as Joe Wolfon said a few weeks ago, and it's becoming increasingly hard to deny it, has become probably the best big man scorer since Wilt Chamberlain. And we're getting to the point where, it, at least this season, you can take out the word big man because he's just he's been arguably the best scorer since Will Chamberlain and the, has scored more points per minute this season than any goddamn player in history. The thing that people clown him for when he wept, openly wept after Kawhi Leonard hit that shot, like 
the one thing you cannot say, I don't you can get your jokes off about his playoff performances and all that, have fun with it. But the one thing you cannot say is that this dude doesn't care and doesn't want to compete. Even if you go like look at some of his famous trolling examples over the years and his battles with other big men and whatever, again, doesn't like, you know, in the great debate between him and Jokic, then uh, Bede had that great matchup last season. But yeah, sure, in the grand scheme of things, you can say Jokic has got the better of him. But like Embiid's there for that matchup and that competition. Even going back to last year, like people took issue with him kind of talk, uh, throwing some jabs at Jokic as part of that MVP discourse that got a little toxic. But at the end of the day, that still stems from his like competitive nature. Like the dude cares. He wants to win. He wants to be the best. No one can justifiably doubt any of that. And so, yeah, the fact that this has become like somehow that he's like ducking matchups or ducking the altitude or whatever the case may be, is very misguided. It's really, really lazy, and it's a little reckless. Um, now, in terms of the whole games played, then yeah, like we, we've said our piece on this multiple times over the last however many months since we first found out this was going to be a thing. You know, we both think like judgment is fine in voting for these things, and you, you brought up the Bill Walton example, which is obviously the example. Um, even if they wanted some sort of cutoff, which like I kind of understood given. You know, maybe resting had gone a little out of control and they're obviously trying to sell broadcast networks on spending even more than the $24 billion they spent last time. Like, I kind of get it, but 65, as I said back then, if they were going to come up with a cutoff, 65 seemed too high from the beginning, especially for all NBA. I think it's too high in general for any award, but especially for all NBA. Like, I remember at the time saying like, you know, 75% of the season is 61.5 games. Could they not have, if they really had to come up with a cutoff, could they not have even maybe said 62? So you have to play like three quarters of the season. You're allowed to miss 20 games. I think that would have been more fair if they had to come up with a cutoff. Anyway, like I said, I think for all NBA, I think it's especially unfair. Like if Tyrese Halliburton plays 64 games this year while being more valuable to an all-time offense than most players in history ever have been. He's not an all-NBAer, and that's going to cost him, what, $40 million on his next contract because of it? Like, sure, Herb Simon, their owner's probably real happy about that. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's a little Bush League. It's also just like, man, we know what the fix to all of this is. Like, we've been saying it for how long? We know what the fix is. If they want to make... It's not going to make it go away. Injuries are still going to happen. Guys are still going to sit out from time to time. But like, if you want to improve this, if you got, if you want guys playing a higher proportion of games, shorten the season and the quality of basketball to go up too. Like, yes, the quality of basketball. Every game would take on more importance. Like, yeah, it's not going to happen no. because people like money, but it just makes all the sense in the world. So. Yeah, anyway, that, that was kind of where where I came down on all of that. And then, you know, the other topic du jour, I feel like, that does sort of revolve around Embiid as well, because he had that 70-point game against the Spurs, and then that was followed up very shortly afterwards by Luka going for 73 against the Hawks. Both those nights, obviously, the, the, the night Embiid had 70, as we discussed last week. Right. Cat had 60-plus, and the night Luka had 73, Book went. For 60 plus. So I yeah. don't remember who tweeted it, but there was a stat where basically the in the entirety of NBA history, it had happened once that players scored, multiple players scored 60 plus in the same night. And then it happened twice in the span of a week this year. Sorry, continue. So I think that 
led to some hand-wringing about the state of the NBA and specifically NBA defense. And I guess, look, I, I have my thoughts. I want to ask you first, though. Like, do we first agree that there is a problem here? And if we do, what actually is the problem and how can it be addressed? So problem to me, honestly, is like too strong of a word. Like, is it, can it sometimes seem a little ridiculous and, and that these scoring numbers are inflated both team-wise and, and player-wise? Like, yes, I get it. I get that argument. But at the same time, you know, for the most part, like these things in the NBA and sports are cyclical, right? Like, sure, there was, you know, probably some sort of overcorrection over the last two decades since the 2004 changes to how defense can be played, which, you know, just by coincidence happened to come immediately after the 2004 Detroit Pistons absolutely grinded games and teams to dust. And shameless plug, you can check out a play it back on the scores YouTube page on the 2004 Pistons. Has there maybe been some sort of overcorrection? Sure, I'll acknowledge that. But I still believe it's more so about just like the otherworldly and overwhelming offensive talent of more players today. Obviously, the three-point revolution above all else and the analytics revolution above all else. And as I've said before, it's like you could argue defenses are less physical than they've ever been, and I'll hear that argument, but they're also more sophisticated than they've ever been in order to try to stop these offenses. And so, like, for me to sit here and say or to, like, agree with all these people that think, like, this is, you know, it's such a detriment to the game and no one plays defense. Like, no, it, defense is more sophisticated than ever. And sure, maybe the NBA can do things to allow defenses to be more physical and there's officiating things that can be done. But I'm more of the mind that, this is just how the game has evolved from a skill and strategy perspective and with some help, obviously, from NBA rules and that it's cyclical and that it also just, like, it can't, it's not mathematically possible for it to just keep going up and up and up. Like, we're not going to get to a point where every single possession ends in a basket. And in fact, I saw in an AP article this week, actually, in an Associated Press article, that if you look at the percentage increase in scoring between year to year, like, although scoring has gone up again from last year to this year, the percentage increase has actually gone down in terms of if you compare it to the percentage increase between the two years prior. And this is the first time in years that that percentage increase has gone down. So I would argue we might yeah. already be so seeing... The rate of acceleration is slowing, essentially, exactly. is, what, yes. is what that's saying. And, and to me, that indicates that we might already be seeing that it is in the process of plateauing. And there will be some natural correction that comes and maybe the cycle starts all over again. I don't know. But those are my thoughts on it. I'm not really up in arms about it, but would love to hear your thoughts. Well, I'll first say that there are two sort of lines of thought that really bother me in this discussion. One is that the like, that defense doesn't get played in the NBA anymore. And that's just patently not true. And you spoke to that like, if you are actually paying attention to these NBA games, you will see that there are like defenses are going to extraordinary lengths to try to slow down some of these offenses. Now there are really bad defenses in the league right now, just like there are and have been in every single season that the NBA has existed. Like some defenses are good and some are bad. And yeah, watching Luca carve through that terrible hot Hawks defense 
like a hot knife through butter, you know, didn't inspire a ton of like good feelings, I guess, or like what you would expect to feel when a guy scores 73 freaking points in a game. It felt a lot like, what are the Hawks doing? This is lazy. This is disorganized. I felt that way about the Hawks defense for most of the season. But that doesn't mean that defense isn't being played in the league today. And again, to your point, it's like more sophisticated than ever. And the things that they're doing, the lengths that they're having to go to, to try to slow down these offenses are quite incredible. Like the, the level of cross-matching, the level of scheme versatility, the different types of switching that we're seeing, you know, like peel switching and next switching and scram switching and, you know, all different kinds of zones, box and ones, like so much creativity expended just to try and slow down these offenses. And they're, you know, I don't know if you could say they're having success or not. Like they are in the sense that like offense could be exploding even more so than it already is if these defenses weren't doing what they could to try and keep up. But obviously it hasn't stopped offense from continuing to go up, up and up. And so that's the one thing that bugs me when people say that. And the other thing is when people try to say that like defense doesn't matter anymore just because we're seeing this crazy offensive proliferation that means defense is is like no longer as important as it once was and I don't know I kind of go the opposite way because like I've said my piece about the Nuggets defense last year and how I feel like they've been painted kind of as this outlier this like paradigm busting type of team and to me that just spoke to like the state of the league and how much parity there was in the league last year that we had a team outside the top 10 in defense win the title for the first time in uh, I think since the 2001 Lakers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but they were still an above average defense. They were still an above average defense. They were a top five defense for basically half the season and they were the number four defense in the playoffs. So I think that's overstated. But also it's like, there's a reason the Timberwolves are number one in the West right now, you know? And there's a reason that the Celtics are number one in the East. And there's a reason that the Knicks have been the best team in basketball since they traded for OG and Nobi. And there's a reason that the Bucks fired Adrian Griffin. Like, it's not that, oh, offense is exploding, so defense is no longer as important. It's like, or it should be, offense is exploding, and if your defense is bad, you're screwed. You're going to get destroyed by these hyper-skilled, hyper-sophisticated offenses. So that to, to say that it's like no longer, you know, a, a defense-oriented league, I don't think is entirely accurate. The rules... And play style does favor offense in terms of just like the pace and yeah, how hard it is to defend physically. And I do think that the league can and should take some steps to correct that. You know, I think they they should grant a bit more leeway to defenders to be physical. But at the same time, like I don't know how much of the problem that's actually going to address because if you look at it, free throw attempt rate league-wide is like lower than it's ever been in NBA history. People want to say like, oh, of course, because everyone just shoots threes now and nobody goes to the rim. Not true. Rim rate is basically close to or right at the level that it's always been at for the last like 30, 40, 50 years. The shots that became threes were long mid-range jumpers. And I don't think it's like any more likely to get fouled shooting a long mid-ranger than it is shooting a three. (laughs) So that doesn't entirely hold water to me. I've heard people suggest maybe like take away the defensive three in the key rule. I wonder if in a league where people are already pissed off about the number of threes that get taken, 
that might worsen the problem. Because, like, if you think teams are taking a lot of threes now, like, I, having a guy just, like, camping out in the lane isn't going to encourage more guys to go to the basket. Exactly. The one counter, I guess, I could see to that is, like, okay, maybe that allows defenders to be more aggressive on the perimeter with, you know, top siding and just running guys off the arc, knowing that if they get beat off the bounce or a guy back cuts them, there's going to be somebody to provide that protection in the lane. But... I don't know if that's the solve. I think we talked like a, a couple years back about the possibility of moving the three-point line back. Doing that would basically eliminate the corner three, though, unless you widen the court. I think eliminating the corner three is too too radical a change. I don't think the league would or should go that far. And widening the court, you could end up in a situation where like a few years down the road, the league has just mastered like the 27-foot three-point line. And now defenses have even more space to cover. So I don't really know what the what the solution is because the problem to me to the extent that that there is one is like you said there is just too much offensive skill in the game today and it's very very difficult to defend and you're seeing these defenses go to extreme lengths throw all kinds of shit at the wall to see what sticks and great offense still trumps great defense in this day and age that's that's just the reality of the situation and I'm just not sure what you do about that me neither and i'm honestly not sure like you have to do anything about that that's like that's kind of what i was getting like when they did something about how defensive games had gone that was also because the game was not as aesthetically pleasing and tv ratings were literally dropping now you could argue that those falling ratings and falling popularity had more to do with the fact the nba was kind of searching for the next one between the michael jordan era and before the lebron era and it had nothing to do with the actual quality of the play. I think it's maybe a little column A, a little column B. But the fact of the matter is, whether you like it or not, games routinely ending 122 to 120 is less of a concern from a business perspective than games ending 65 to 61. Like, that's just the way it is. So there isn't a business case to make for needing to address this the way there was when defense had gotten out of control or offense had lagged behind. Again, I'm not saying there aren't things they can do. Again, maybe it has to do with the officiating and like giving defenses more leeway, but short of that, not really sure what else can be or needs to be done other than people just need to chill the hell out and stop <laughs> whining like little. Well, I just, look, I, I, I'm not saying people need to chill out and stop whining because I understand that People, and I'm honestly one of them, that want to see maybe a little bit more balance. But there's certain things that, it, like, you sort of started the ball rolling in this direction with, with skill development and what essentially the three-point revolution has wrought. That it, it's kind of like you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. You know what I'm saying? Unless you do want to do something as drastic as, like, eliminating the corner three, which maybe it gets to the point where that has to happen. I don't know. But it's like, I'm... I'm watching these games and I'm seeing like two-way guys and deep bench role players making sick live dribble skip passes to the corner that only superstars were making like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Like I'm watching the, the Grizzlies-Cavs game last night and Jacob Gilliard, a two-way guy, and, and a converted two-way guy, Vince Williams Jr., are both making these sick live dribble skip passes, man. And like that I even, you know, like... Uh, screen and dive big men, right? That would typically, you know, be considered like the least skilled players in the league are 
able to consistently make really great passing reads and play make on the short roll. You know, guys, you're seeing guys like Derek Lively enter the league now who are in that screen and dive mold who are now able to like catch the ball on the short roll and make multiple dribble dribble moves on their way to the basket if there's somebody who's tagging. Yeah. Or make the four on three read and find somebody open on the perimeter, dude. I'm less than a decade I, ago, Draymond doing that seemed revolutionary. That's the thing. And now it's like, yeah, so big men are entering the league doing that. I watched like Nas Reed, right? A seven footer. They were playing a game against the Clippers a couple weeks back. Uh, somebody kicked him the ball on the three point line. Kawhi Leonard closed out on him. Nas Reed, seven feet tall, pump fakes, attacks the closeout. Amir Coffee steps up to challenge him. Hesitation dribble, inside out dribble, gets around him, glides in for like a one handed gather and layup. Like, I'm watching Jericho Sims, dude. Jericho <laughs> Sims, the other game against Utah. Caught a laydown pass in the dunker spot. Walker Kessler was like right there, so he couldn't go up with it. So he dribbles the ball out, dribbles it out to about the elbow, breaks out a spin back move to shake Kessler and drives in and dunks it. I watched Tristan Thompson catch the ball on the short roll after yep. the defense put two on the ball against Donovan Mitchell, right? This is just the roids though. Maybe PEDs. Nevertheless. <laughs> You got to put two on the ball against Donovan Mitchell because he'll, he'll cook you with the pull-up dribble. Oh, but now you got Tristan Thompson on the short roll. What does he do? He manipulates the weak side zone. There's one guy playing between two defenders on that, uh, or two shooters on that side. He looks to the wing and gets the defender jumping in that direction and then throws a no-look dime to Max Struess in the corner. Tristan Thompson. So it's not just like the young guys who are coming into the league with these skills like even the veteran contingent is picking this stuff up and i i just again i don't know what you do when there is that much offensive skill on the floor there's like no good way to defend some of these actions you know and it's like the the, the sophistication of the actions themselves multi-screener actions tons of motion elbow offense you know these triangle concepts that are now being imbued with all of the modern skill development that we've seen and it's become very, very hard to stop. But there are defenses who are much better at it than others and those teams are really successful. So to say that it doesn't matter is also inherently wrong. Yeah. One team in the last 68 years won a championship with a below average defense. It still very much matters. Yeah. All, all that stuff, All the big men showing off those skills, players in general being more skilled, bad for the league. We'll find ba bad for <laughs> basketball to have more skilled players. Got it. The NBA is going to do something about this. Big they men, did, man. They suspended Tristan Thompson. There you go. Problem solved. There you go. Oh, man. Do you want to get to any potential all star snubs and then get to the Cavs after the break? You want to take the break and then do our all star snubs? What do you want to do here? I don't have a ton to say about the snubs. So. Right, we so can just get to them now and yeah, let's and, squeeze them in quickly. I'll okay. say out West, I actually think the teams, I, to be honest, I think for the most part in both conferences, the teams were pretty much nailed. Don't really have many complaints in the West. I'd say maybe you could talk me into one of Sabonis or Fox over cat. Maybe talk me into Shen Goon, but like Towns is averaging, you know, roughly 23 and 9 on 52, 44, 87 shooting for the best team in the West, the number two overall team in the league. And by the way, has played all but one game through 48 for that team. So I'm going to say I'm completely fine with this group of 12. And then give me, I guess, one of Sabonis or Fox as an injury replacement. Depend, like, 
even though the injury replacement doesn't have to be a positional designate, I'd say, all right, if it is a big man that you need, give me Sabonis. And if it's a guard, just give me Fox. Um, in the interest of it, I, I find it hard to separate those two. If you needed a third injury replacement, I guess I'd go to Shingun or something like, but you know, and, and again, it's, it's hard to make all teams, especially in the West, like Markinen and Harden are two that theoretically, if you look at their numbers, you could say they're snubs. But again, I just went through really between the 12 and then three potential injury replacements, 15. So even if you expanded the rosters to 15, which I'm on board for, I think Harden and Markinen would still be snubs because again, as we talked about, there's a lot of skill in the league and especially in the West. And again, this year. So yeah, that that's all I had to say about that. Like even the Pelicans are having a solid season. I didn't even have Ingram and Zion in the discussion for myself because I would have had them like 18, 19. So yeah, I, at least in the West, I think pretty much nailed it. Maybe split hairs about Sabonis or Fox over Cat, but I'm completely fine with it. Your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, Towns was the one that stuck out to me where like when I did my list, he was not only not, an all-star, but was behind like six or seven other snubs that I had kind of on the, the outside looking in. But again, be, I don't think he's not deserving. I think he's had a terrific season, been amazing offensively, you know, almost 50, 40, 90, fitting into his role beautifully. And as I wrote about recently, one of the most improved defenders in the league this season. I would have had Gobert in there ahead of him. I just think he's been more important to Minnesota's success easily the best defensive player in the league this year. And I think for the number one defense in the league, like that should be rewarded in my mind. So I would have had Gobert over Towns and that's pretty much all I would have changed. Like it was actually kind of like splitting hairs for me between Steph and Fox. Cause I think Steph hasn't had his best season. I think Fox has been terrific, but if it came down to it, I think I would have given the nod to Steph and like I, I would have been fine with it either way, but I still think Steph's better, even though he's, you know, declining a bit, not having as great a season, has slipped defensively, and I think definitely think Fox is better than him at that end of the floor at this point. Either one of those guys I would have been fine with. I'm fine with Steph obviously being named an all-star. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's like, yeah, Towns leapfrogged for me. Uh Fox, Sabonis, Markinen. Shangun, uh, Gobert, as I mentioned, Jamal Murray. Uh, I would have had all those guys in as like wild cards over Towns, but I'm still fine with him being there because I think he has been all-star caliber this year. And then other guys I had on my long list were like Wemby, Chet, Zion, Harden, Ingram, and J-Dub. And Desmond Bain, although Bain's missed a bunch of time yeah. recently, so that probably takes him out of the running. But like, yeah, yeah just, just a bloodbath in the West. So... I don't, I, again, I'm not like quibbling too hard about where they landed. I think Towns is fine and a deserving all-star, but uh, there are a bunch of guys I would have had in there ahead of him. In the East, I'll say, I mean, my biggest beef, to be honest, is that I think Dame starting is a joke. I would have given it to Donovan Mitchell, but I flip a coin between him and Jalen Brunson. I would have had Dame at best a distant fifth, a distant fifth among East guards this year behind Halliburton, Mitchell, Brunson, and Maxey. But Agreed. anyway, they they all got in, so I'm not gonna you know beef too much about it. Um, I guess if you're asking me my biggest snub in the East, it, like maybe Jimmy, but he also has missed I think like 15 or 16 games and kind of slept walk through parts of this season as he's wont to do sometimes in the regular season. So you know if if my one true snub is that 
I don't know. I don't know how much I can really manufacture uh, outrage for that. Obviously, there's other players that you can look to and the numbers they put up and say, oh, this guy was snubbed. But, you know, whether it's Trey White putting up the numbers he's putting up while also continuing to be one Trey of White. Man, if you could combine those two players, that would be one of the best yeah. players of My all bad. time. My bad. Trey Young. <laughs> um, who is, can you imagine uh, Trey Trey Young with Derek White's defense? No, that would be maybe the best player in the league. Um, yeah, Trey Young obviously continue to put up the numbers he's putting up, but also continuing to be one of the worst defensive players, if not the worst defensive player in the league for a team that just can't figure it out. Like, not really going to say he was snubbed despite the numbers. Uh, Derek White, again, has an argument based on how well he's been on both sides of the ball for the best team in basketball. At the same time, it's... He is still more like an elite, elite role player with less responsibility than what you usually expect from an all-star. So I'm not going to say he was snubbed. Scotty Barnes, anyone who listens to the show, anyone in Toronto knows how much I love him and, and we love what he's done this season. But there's a lot of deserving East front court players. And when your team's 13 games under 500, it's going to be tough for you to earn that first all-star nod. Pascal Siakam, obviously, again, like numbers-wise, yeah, he's kind of there. But he, whether you know through his own fault or because of the offensive system the Raptors switched to earlier in the year, I think that greatly diminished his chances of being an all-star. Don't really think he was snubbed. Like, I don't know, Jared Allen, Kristaps Porzingis. I, I think Jimmy Butler's the truest, like the closest thing to a snub. Again, there's also going to be an injury replacement needed because Julius Randle's out. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Chris Mannix tweeted last night that, he didn't say like, you know, citing a leak source. He literally just put it out there as if it was like just a statement of fact. But he tweeted that Adam Silver, like the group he's going to pick from for an injury replacement for Julius Randle is, is Derek White. Okay, fair. Trey Young, eh, fair. Chris Tapps Porzingis, eh, whatever. And Miles Turner? The fuck? So we got guys who have been snubbed from the snub yeah, list, basically. I was going to say, I think other than Dame starting, I think... My biggest beef with the East All-Stars is actually with the reported group of potential injury replacements. Yeah, so for me, again, like I did this exercise and I had Scotty in as an All-Star. I had him as one of the three front court reserves with Bam and Randall. I can't believe I put Randall. You know about my distaste for his game and my aesthetic bias, but it's kind of undeniable the way that he's played or, or had been playing before he suffered that dislocated shoulder. Just, you know, the the physicality and the force that he plays with and the way that sort of trickles down to the rest of the Knicks. And also, I think this has been his best passing season. Like, I've actually genuinely enjoyed watching him pass the ball for extended stretches this year. Even though I think he overdribbles and misses reads and things like that, he's been quicker with his decision-making. The passes themselves have had just like a ton of zip on them. And I think he's actually been a, a quality creator for them in spite of some of my questions about his shot selection and overall decision-making, I think he deserved it. So I had him, Bam, and Scotty as my front court guys. Um, you know, look, Paolo has been really good, and especially that stretch where he was just having to do everything for them on offense when Franz was out. Uh, you know, I, I gained a lot of respect for him during that stretch, but I just think Scotty's a better player. Like, he's better in almost every measurable way. He's uh, a better playmaker. He's a better defender. And even like the shooting, I know Paolo kind of looks the part of like an oversized pick and roll creator who can like get to his shot and does get to his mid-range jumper a lot. But I think you know, like Scotty's shooting numbers are actually better than Paolo's this year. 
And I have some real questions about Paolo's shot selection too. So I would have Scotty ahead of him, but I, I can't quibble too much. Again, like you mentioned, Scotty's on a team that's 13 games under 500. I don't think, you know, All-Star is necessarily just about rewarding team success, which is why I, I would have had Trey Young on the All-Star team as well. But I don't necessarily have a problem with rewarding team success. And Paolo's been playing games that matter more than the games that Scotty has been playing. And he's acquitted himself very well. Uh, and you could say the same thing for Jalen Brown, who I didn't have on my team, but I think is totally fine and deserving, uh, especially when compared to the guys that he's up against, which, like I said at the top, these are all fringy guys anyway. So it's hard for me to like get too upset about guys not making it when none of these guys would really even be sniffing the conversation in the West anyway. Exactly. And yeah, with respect to Paolo, I'm a, on on board and agree that Scotty is the better player who's probably he's having even the better season and not just that he's the better player at the higher ceiling, but he's actually having the better season. So I get you could say, well, then it just should be an easy answer. He's the all-star. But while I don't like overvaluing team records and all-star discussions, I also think like it's different. Like if a guy's a no-brainer all-star, like I, I don't know, pick you. Like if for some reason... Shea Gilgis Alexander had like nothing around him, but he was having the exact same season he's having, but the team wasn't good. Like he's obviously an all-star. I think if it's more like kind of lower down the line, you're talking about more like reserve types, kind of bubble type guys, I'm fine rewarding the player who's doing it for a winning team as opposed to the guy who's 13 games under 500. And with respect to Paolo, like, yes, efficiency definitely doesn't blow anyone out of the water. 54% true shooting. I know Orlando's down to 27th on offense now, the fourth worst offense in the league. But like you mentioned that stretch when everyone was out, like his offensive abilities have been the saving grace. And there was that stretch when he just absolutely carried them and that offense. His ability to create was literally all they had going for them. And they were still keeping things afloat and winning games. And also like his overall efficiency is so dragged down by the sub 70% free throw shooting. Because otherwise, despite a wonky shot selection, I'll agree. 48% inside the arc, roughly 36% from deep on 30% usage with like very little spacing and overall offensive talent around him at his, like for a winning team, I, you can quibble with the efficiency, but I think there's enough there where you can be like, all right, like can't really ask for much more from this guy in this situation, averaging yeah. 23, seven and five for a winning team. He's an all-star to me in the East. He's gotten a lot better as a passer. And the thing I think that really actually would sell me on his candidacy is he's like guarding everybody yeah. while carrying this big offensive load. He's also, you know, like guarding the Kevin Durant's of the world, the Giannis's of the world, like those big wing creators are his assignment. And I think he has acquitted himself well in those matchups too. Like his defense has been quite strong for a team that has been, you know, top five on that end of the floor pretty much all season. So I'm fine with it again. Didn't make my team, but no issues with him being there. Okay, well, fine. Uh, listen, I I don't know how badly you want to talk with Cass. And I realize that this has become a running joke because we keep running out of time for them. And I promise you we did not plan it like this. And I apologize to anyone li listening in Cleveland, uh, maybe our colleague Travis Sochik, uh, great baseball feature writer. And yeah, I've got a Donovan Mitchell feature coming out today, so that, yeah. that can suffice for Travis and any other yeah. Cavs or Cleveland-based listeners who want to hear my thoughts on the team. Uh, it's it's Mitchell specific, but I get into talking about the team and how it's changed around him as well. And that incredible run that they're I, technically still on, like Mobley and Garland are now back. 
although Mobley missed their last game and they're both kind of on these minutes restrictions, but they've kept winning, not entirely convincingly against Detroit and Memphis, but they're now 17 and four in their last 21 games. And so, yeah, we don't have to have like a deep dive conversation about them right now, but just in the spirit of the all-star conversation, if you're asking me what would I have changed on my ballot, I know everyone was like, Jalen Brunson deserved to be starting over Dame. Brunson's been amazing. I would have, I would have Mitchell. Uh, I think like the run that he put together during those guys' absences was extraordinary. And he did it at both ends of the floor. He did it as a scorer. He did it as a playmaker, which I think is something that's flying under the radar, like how good his passing has been this season. Again, that's something I wrote about today, but uh, I, I just think he deserves so much credit for keeping that team afloat. And, you know, I I guess I, I don't necessarily like giving a player credit for this because, you know, like you're under contract, you should honor that contract. And like sometimes players kind of asking out mid-season can rub me the wrong way. So I don't want to say like, hey, credit to him for like not asking for a trade. But I just want to go back to when Garland got hurt, goes out with like a broken jaw. Mobley was already on the shelf and it's like Garland's going to miss six weeks, basically. They were 13 and 12 with a negative net rating and they were ninth in the East. And there was talk at the time of like, man, should they just trade him now? Get out ahead of this and like preempt his free agency, maximize their return for him, punt on this season. That was a legitimate conversation that people were having. Seemed like their season might've been sunk. And yeah, at that time he could have been like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm probably not going to resign, you know, when I become a free agent in 2025, let's just get this over with now. Like you can trade me instead. He just like puts his head down and plays the best basketball of his career and helps completely turn this season around. And I don't want to discount the contributions of Jared Allen. Who's been amazing. Sam Merrill, Sam Merrill, all nobody team, superstar, just an absolute gunslinger who has really been a huge boon to their offense with his shooting ability. Um, you know, Isaac Okoro, frankly, has I think had an amazing defensive season and has been more assertive than ever as a driver on offense. Um, you know, Dean Wade, who I thought it was kind of underplayed last year, how like at the start of the season, he seemed like he was going to be that like three and D answer on the wing to fill out their starting five. Then he had a shoulder injury that totally wrecked his shot and wrecked his season. But he's back and he's healthy, is hitting 40% of his threes, and he's like defending his ass off at three different positions. I, I think it's it's just like been one of the best stories in the league. And I think Mitchell does deserve a lot of credit for instead of checking out, which some players may have done in that situation, he just he just put his head down and carried this team to the brink of the two seed in the East. They're a game out of the two seed, and they've got the second easiest remaining schedule in the Eastern conference. And why I think that is so important is like, look, we have this top five in the East that I feel like has really separated itself. Right. And yeah, maybe the heat are still going to be a dangerous playoff team. And maybe the Pacers because of their offense will be scary too. But if you can get out of that four or five bracket, if you can get up to the two or the three seed and avoid one of those other four teams in the first round, against whom I think Cleveland would be an underdog, then that's just massive, right? Like it's going to be so important for this team to win a playoff series. 
And to do that, I think they might need to get up to two or three. And they've got a really good chance to do that. You mentioned where they were when Garland went down and, you know, Moldy goes down. They're ninth. They're barely treading water. Negative point differential. The run they've gone on, like, it's not just that it has them in fourth and they're, you know, separating themselves from the bottom half of the East. They are literally in the standings now closer to first place than they are to seventh, than they are to the play-in. So, like, for them to have gained that kind of ground and made that kind of move with the talent that they had on the shelf is absolutely remarkable. Mostly comes down to Donovan Mitchell. Again, full credit to guys like Jared Allen, Sam Merrill, every, like, J.B. Bickerstaff, but mostly because of Donovan Mitchell. And uh, he just deserves all the credit in the world for it. This Cavs team deserves all the credit in the world for it. And uh, I think they are definitely going to be a force to be reckoned with in the second half of the season. Like you mentioned, easiest schedule now too. So I think there's a lot of good stuff coming for the Cavs in the second half of the season. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of how they've done it over the last couple months and everything because we really have run out of time. But I let's leave on this question that I have for you because I think it's an interesting one. Like you mentioned you know, all the talk with Mitchell, even back then about how like, oh, maybe it's best to get out of it and trade him because the expectation is that since Cleveland wasn't his desired landing spot in trade, that that's not where he wants to be. And like, he won't resign there. Like he's going to give it his all, but then he ultimately won't resign there. So my question to you is what needs to happen for you to consider that trade? Like, and everything they gave up for Donovan Mitchell to be considered a success in your mind? Like, does he just need to resign? Is it like, okay, if he resigns, this entire thing's been a success, obviously, because they got that level of star for, you know, as long as they would have had him. And if he doesn't resign, like if it ends up that he just gives them two to three years of this kind of awesome play, what level of success do you think they need to achieve with him before he leaves? to make that trade in your mind like a successful one? Man, it's tough because I I tend to not want to think about trades in those terms. Like, I think you should always just look at the intent and the process behind a move rather than the results. Like, I know it's a results-based business and it doesn't actually work that way. But I thought at the time that it was a justifiable move. I obviously didn't see Lowry Markinen breaking out to the extent that he has. So maybe that looks different in hindsight and kudos to the jazz for recognizing that and getting a hell of a player in return. But I think from Cleveland's perspective, they got an amazing player in his prime with three years left on his deal. And he helped turn them into a very, very good to this point, regular season team. 51 wins last year, number two net rating in the league. It all goes up in smoke in the playoffs this year. They're rolling, been one of the best stories in the league. I'm sure their fans are really enjoying this. And I'm sure that entire fan base is thrilled to have Donovan Mitchell right now. I don't know how many of them would undo that trade if they could. Yeah, Maybe some of them would because they see what Markkanen is doing and think about how maybe he would fit better on a team you know, with Darius Garland. But I, I, I don't know, man. I think that it has kind of justified itself already with the way that Mitchell has played for them. And maybe that changes if, if they flame out in the first round again the way that they did last year in like five games and it looks as ugly as it did last year, I might change my tune. But for now, I think it feels like they've gotten what they paid for, yeah. right? An yeah, absolute right. superstar who has been a consummate pro, who has done exactly what they could have 
asked of him in difficult circumstances, you know, with other guys out of the lineup carrying them at the offensive end, you know, rounding out his playmaking set and contributing, like meaningfully contributing to one of the best defenses in the league. You know, not just being like supported and salvaged by like their great defensive front line, but actually really helping as to me, one of the better team defenders at the guard spot in the league, like with what he's been able to do as a weak side helper, low man rotations, tagging cutters, you know, zoning up shooters, making really, really good reads and, you know, third in the league in steals, six pin deflections, like all of that. I just think, I don't know, like you can't, you can't ever ensure that you're going to get a particular result when you make a trade. That's not how it works. So to say that X has to happen in order for this move to be justified, I just think is maybe looking at things a little bit wrong. But again, if it's like we get to the playoffs and we see, oh, maybe this team was just actually never built for playoff success and that makes this look like a mistake, I might reassess. But, you know, I always think back to like the Kawhi trade, right? And what if that shot against Philly had rimmed out and the Raptors had lost in overtime and that whole season ends in the second round, which is where all their other previous seasons had ended and why they had to make that move in the first place. And DeRozan's out the door and Pirtle's out the door and the first round picks out the door. And you got one exciting season of Kawhi, but it ended in the second round where all your other seasons had ended. Does that mean the trade was a failure? Like, does that mean you shouldn't have done it? You know, that's that's kind of how I tend to think about these things. Is like, no, that was 100% the move that they had to make. And even if it had ended up, you know, with them losing in the second round, it still would have been the right move 10 times out of 10. This one's not as clear cut as that one is, but my point still stands. I hear you. All right. I think that's good for this week. I think we, it was like a supercharged 70 minute episode. No break. <laughs> no fan shout outs. I haven't had a sip of water, Cash. I'm parched. We're, we're going to get the hell out of here. We'll get back to our regular scheduled programming with a fan shout out next week. Um, I will just throw out as a joke uh, our score colleague, Michael Bradburn who's a loyal listener of the show and is always giving me feedback and things he liked about the show, also said that he would unsubscribe if we ever gave him a, a shout-out. So, calling your bluff, Bradburn. Uh, but no, we'll, we'll be back with a regular fan, a non-colleague regular fan shout-out next week. Most likely, you'll hear from us at the end of next week after the trade deadline. Most likely, that's when you'll hear from us. I guess unless maybe if some like seismic deal goes down early in the week that we feel we absolutely need to talk about before the deadline, maybe you'll hear from us early, but most likely you'll hear from us Friday when the dust settles on the deadline. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.